If you turn with me to John chapter 2, it's also printed on page 5. I'm going to be reading from verses 12 to 22. Now, this is Jesus, according to John, writing about his ministry, really, really going into his ministry and his mission and his purpose and also his character. And John writes in a very particular way. Let me read from verses 12 to 22. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get those out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus has spoken. This is God's word. Last week, we began a new series. It's a new series because it's our first series. Uh, We began a new series on the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John teaches us the single most important question in our lives. Who is Jesus? Chapter 2. There are two episodes. Almost seemingly a juxtaposition of episodes. You have one scene, the first half of chapter 2, at a wedding. You have the second scene, second half, at a temple. Weddings and temples. Your view of them, your, the feeling when I mention the word wedding, and the feeling that you get when I mention the word temple, two very, very juxtaposing feelings. And yet, they're sandwiched together here in this passage, in this chapter. They seem utterly different on the surface. Jesus is invited to the wedding in chapter 2. Here he intrudes. Jesus is adding to the wedding. He's adding to the celebration here in this passage, in this chapter. Here he's taking away. He's clearing out. He's purifying. Jesus is bringing joy to the celebration at the wedding. Here in this passage, he's bringing anger, confusion, frustration. Jesus is um, bringing comfort to the master of the banquet at the wedding. First half of chapter 2, in this passage, he's disturbing people. He's confounding people. In both cases, John, the author, is trying to show us who Jesus is, his mission. So they're connected, and they're actually going to be very, very similar. What's the text trying to show us? On one hand, Jesus will fill, will fill your life, will fill your table as in a feast. But on the other hand, he will flip those tables over, and he will chase everything out. More importantly, these are, just, you know, these are not two different things that Jesus does, but rather they are two different ways of showing and demonstrating the same thing about Jesus. And if you see that, only if you can see that, only if you see that, that's the way, that's the beginning of really getting him. That's the beginning of really understanding him, understanding his purpose, understanding who he is, what he came to do. And no matter what, no matter what, you can't say at the end, oh, Jesus He's a good teacher. You can't just say that. 
You can't just dismiss Jesus as a, a good role model or a good teacher. Look at what's going on. What he did at the wedding. He changes water into wine. Very, one opposite, that's one huge extreme. On the other hand, what, what does he do? He goes into the temple, and he's chasing everybody out. You can't just walk away and stay neutral. You're going to either have to love him or hate him. You're going to have to embrace him or reject him. You're going to have to cling to him, depend on him, or you're going to have to crucify him. You can't just stay neutral. And in verses 18 to 21, look at what happens here. He's, he's explaining his actions you know, after he clears the temple out. And what he says is so cosmic. What he says is so transcendent. What he says is so just out of this world. They don't know what to do. You know, they want to kill him, but they stand back. What are they doing? Even the disciples, it took them a while to figure out, what are they doing during this time? They're processing Jesus. They're taking him in. And the author here is telling us, you need to take him in. Just like the Jews, just like the disciples on the other side, we need to take him in. We need to understand. And there are three lessons today that we're going to learn. One, the temple. Two, one, the temple. Two, his claims, Jesus' claims. And three, the implications. One, the temple. That's going to tell us um, the importance, you know, of the temple. The second is Jesus' claims, why he is central to this understanding of the temple. And the third thing that we learn is then um, the implications. And the implications are going to tell us, you know, if we were to take him in, if we're going to take of him, what's that going to do to our lives? First, uh, the temple. Why it's important. What it used to mean, what it means today. Very simple. What it used to mean. The temple... The ancients all knew. The ancients all understood, no matter what faith system they were a part of back in the day, every bit of the ancients knew that the temple was the place where heaven met with earth, where the divine met with the mortal, where the supernatural resided here with the natural. All the ancients knew that. And so we knew that it was a transcendent, absolute power that resided here in the temple. But what does it mean today? Today, when you think about the word temple, you think about a very obsolete place in a very obsolete building where spooky things that movies sometimes depict tend to take place. And, you know, if you think about how did, how did that happen how do we get so disconnected from the way the ancients viewed the temple? The ancients viewed this as a transcendent place where the supernatural, all the ancients knew that there, it was a supernatural power, a supernatural absolute power. How is it that now it's kind of migrated to how we believe and view the temple today? Why is it when we think about the temple today, it's this obsolete backwards place, something that used to happen among people who are much less knowledgeable? Why do we view that now? And, and that's the result of, Two movements, really, what you have are in the 1800s, the Enlightenment era, you know, with the French Revolution and the Enlightenment. And then what you have also, that co coinciding with the 19th century German philosophies and the German critiques that came in. Those two things merged. And as those two philosophies merged and migrated westward into the, uh, into the Western Hemisphere, people became critical. They became more philosophical. And, philosophical. And, and what was the essence of the Enlightenment? It was that there is no such thing as the divine. That there's no such thing as, some, as, as something that can be explained um, 
that, that cannot be explained through natural circumstances, natural causes. That's what the Enlightenment era taught, that there's no such thing as the supernatural, that everything and anything can be explained through natural causes, through what is natural. Everything can be proven as a product of some natural cause. And uh, that there's no true mystery. Now, times are changing. Things are starting to change. There's become, in recent years, a tremendous upsurge. We live in a time today where it's become acceptable to say that you're looking for spiritual truth, where you're looking for spiritual reality. I mean, it's become unacceptable to say that you found it, but it's become acceptable to say that you're looking for it. And if you think about it, why is that the case? Why is now the tide starting to turn again? It's because people have realized that if at the bottom of everything there's a natural underlying cause, then that means that there's a natural cause for our personal problems. And we know that that's not the case. There's a natural cause for the global problems of the world. That science can explain that, and we know that science cannot explain that. Can science explain why there's poverty? Can science explain suffering? Can science or even philosophy explain the cause or the solution to war, famine, genocide, racism? We're starting to realize that. Freud believed, you know, Sigmund Freud, he believed that all views of God are um, the result of our, or a response to our uh, instinctive, it's a response to our instinctive desire to hide our insecurities. So we've created these concepts of God in our lives. But if that's the case, then Freud's view of God is also a conjuring up a reaction or response to his view, his insecurities, and, and his uh, underlying, the things that he's hiding, that he's insecure about. And what we realize now is that it's, it's absolutely important for us to come back to seeing that there may be supernatural, uh, divine, um, otherworldly underlying reasons or causes for the problems of our world in our own lives. There has to be something real. More and more people are beginning to see that. More and more people are, are beginning to return to that concept. And people are starting, to say, are starting to say, actually, that the main problem in our lives is that we've become disconnected from the divine, that we've become disconnected from the spiritual. What is the temple? The temple is this place where we bridge the gap between us and ultimate spiritual reality. All the ancients, whether they were misguided or not, they believed that. They knew that. For 200 years, people have been trying to push us away towards law and, and science and democracy, but it's starting to fail. We understand that that only takes us so far. We need to return to the supernatural. We need to return to the spiritual. We need to return to the divine. That's the temple. That's the meaning of the temple. Now, the second is Jesus' claims. And you see this. Let me read again verses 18 to 22. We're going to kind of work our way backwards. Verse 18, Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They come to Jesus and they ask him, what authority do you have? He says, you know, tear this building down, tear this temple down. I'm going to raise it up in three days. And they say, you know, what authority do you have? 
They're essentially asking, how can you act as if you own this place? And what's Jesus' response? Own it. I am it. Own it. Own the temple. This temple is going to crumble. I am the temple. I am the temple. I am the climax of history. I am the climax of the garden. What happened to the garden? I am the climax of the ark and the tabernacle and the temple where the divine meets with man. I am the ultimate reality, in essence, that you are seeking, that you need. What was inside the biblical temple? Do you know? In 2 Samuel, we see the beginnings of the building of the temple. And that goes on into the king's books and the chronicles. And once the temple was built, what happened? The glory of the Lord came, and it says that the fire, that fire cloud that guided the Israelites out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, to Sinai, through 40 years of wilderness, and then into the land of Canaan. When that temple got erected, what happened? The fire cloud that guided them dwelled. It said it filled the temple. It literally came in. I mean, that's absolute power, you understand? That's absolute power absolute spiritual reality. The ancients had no doubt because of what they followed for 40 years came, resided right in the temple. 40 years. You see that absolute power and now it comes and dwells with them. And that presence was his glory, his Shekinah glory, his kavod glory in Hebrew. That's what it was. When the ark, which represented the presence of God, uh, when it was captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel, it was captured by the Philistines, one of the uh, the uh, wives of the evil priests who didn't even know the Lord was pregnant. And uh, she's looking out and she hears the news that the ark, the presence of the God was captured and that it was taken away from Israel. And immediately she's so distressed, she goes into labor and she gives birth to a son. What's the name of the son? She names him Ichabod. In Hebrew, Ichabod. No glory. The glory has departed from us. When the presence of God was not, was not here, it resulted in distress, unrest, labor, labor, distress, pain, suffering. No glory. The glory of the Lord has departed from us. But in the temple, the fire came in and it blazed. This kind of glory. That was the divine presence of God. And this is the same thing that appeared before Moses at the burning bush. This was the same thing that carried the people all the way through the desert wandering into the land of Canaan. Jesus is saying, my body, my body is the temple. I am that glory cloud residing within. I am the holy of holies. The glory cloud of God is residing in me. John chapter 1 verse 14 says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling there is tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled or templed among us. He is residing here. The Shekinah glory residing with us. Hebrews chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. In other words, he is that fire cloud. Immeasurable power, immeasurable glory. What he's saying is, I am the kavod. I am real spiritual reality. But I'm different than other temples. See, this is the meaning behind what he did in the temple. We're going to get to that. But this is the meaning behind his claim. In every other temple, you pay the price. 
You provide the sacrifice. You pay the price. But what he's saying is, in my temple, I pay the price. I am the sacrifice. I am the priest. I am the altar. I am the lamb. I bridge the gap. I am the God on the other side of the gap. But I actually bridge the gap, and I even lead you across. That's Jesus. I am the new mediation. A whole new way of gaining access to God. And this is just absolutely, you've got to get your arms wrapped around it. If you were a Jew back then, this is absolutely remarkable to the people then. But if you think about it, it should be absolutely remarkable to us now. Why? None of the other founders of any other religion could claim that. No rabbi, nor priest, nor religious leader, nor religious teacher ever dared to make that kind of a claim in history. They couldn't have said it. Why? Because they couldn't bridge the gap. They couldn't bridge the gap. They'll tell you how to get across the gap, but they couldn't bridge it. When Jesus was on the cross, what's he doing? The veil that represented the gap. The veil that separated man from the glory presence of God in the temple was torn from top to bottom. It wasn't torn from bottom to top as if man stood at the bottom and broke his way in to access with God. It was torn, it says in the Bible, from top to bottom as if God himself grabbed the curtain and tore it. He gives access because Jesus bridged the gap. Jesus bridged the gap. The true fuller temple Rather than you paying the price, he pays the price on the cross. And he calls you to come in, to enter in. It's called access. His access is what you need. And that's the only prerequisite. That's the only prerequisite. You need to need it. You don't work to earn it. You need to need it. It doesn't take a lot of work to need. You need to desire it. You need to thirst after it. It doesn't take work to thirst. You just thirst. It doesn't take work to get hungry. You just get hungry. What you're saying is, I know I can't have access. Not the way I am. I know that. But I want access. Jesus is saying, you can have access. How do you get it? Jesus bridged the gap by paying the price. When you look at the cross, what do you see? What was he saying when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he was, what he was saying was, I am the radiance of God's glory. I am the presence of God. I am the exact representation of God. But right now, I have become ikavod. The glory of the Lord has departed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is the glory of the Lord has departed from me. The exact radiance of God, and yet the glory has departed from me, and I no longer have access. I have become utterly disowned as God's son. Utterly disowned. Why? So that we could have access. So that we could enter in. So that we could become owned and shepherded and loved and embraced by God. Jesus did the work. He had the perfect record, and then he paid the perfect price on our behalf. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what are the implications? We talked about the temple and the importance of the temple. We talked about uh, Jesus, the center, the centrality of that temple, why it's important that he's at the center of the temple. Now we're going to go into what he actually did. A lot of people like to focus and comment on this actual work of Jesus in the temple. What are the implications for us? What does it mean if you take this truth in? The clearing of the temple teaches us three things. Probably a lot more things, but I'm going to point out three things that the clearing of the temple does for us. First, it should change your relationship with God forever, for all time. Let's read verses 13 to 17. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. A lot of critics are going to tell you that what Jesus was doing here and you're going to hear this over and over, that he was protesting the commercialization of Christianity, right? You're going to hear, I'm sure all of you, if you've been inside a church and heard this passage preached at some point, they tell you that what Jesus was doing here was he was protesting, he was revolting against the commercialization of religion and, and Christianity. But the fact is Jews came from all over the world to the temple. There was only one temple. It was in Jerusalem. And Jews were migrating from all over the world to come to the temple. Because that was the one place where they could find access. It was a physical place. A high priest once a year would enter into the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. But when you were there, and if you're a Hebrew, if you're a Jew, you would go in, you would travel from far and wide. And it would be very impractical to walk your animal. I mean, they didn't have cars back then. They, would, they didn't have planes or cars. You would walk. You know, you would, you would ride or you would walk. And the thing is, uh, it would be impractical to take an animal who's unclean, uh, who's cleaned ceremonially, unblemished, because either it would get defiled or you would get defiled or it would die along the way and the whole purpose, you can't enter into the temple like that in that state. So what they, it was a service to have these money changers because people were coming from all over the world. So you needed currency exchange. You know, it was sophisticated. But also they needed animals. They needed animals that were ceremonially cleansed and ready for sacrifice. And it was a service then for these people. So here are these people, money changers everywhere. In the outer court, as you walk in, there's all this noise, and you can imagine the smell. I mean, if you ever go to the zoo, you can imagine the smell of the animals and the noise, and you can imagine the clinging and the arguing, the bartering that's going on to get these animals at a good price. Jesus goes in. He makes a whip out of cords, and he chases everybody out. He chases everybody out. He's overturning tables, and he chases everybody out. What is Jesus calling us to? Those money changers, those animals, are all about you making the sacrifice. And Jesus says, get these out of here. And what he's doing is he's calling us to a grace-based relationship with God. Intimate, personal, real, transformed. He says, you turned my father's house into a market. The word market is an emporium in Greek. He says, basically, you turn my father's house into a mall. 
Get these out of here. I don't want people paying the price. I'm going to pay the price. Once and for all, I'm going to pay the price. On one hand, you can try to buy your way to God. We do that every day. Every bit that you feel guilt, every time you feel guilt over something, the next immediate reaction, it's natural. We're built this way, is to want to pay the price. We've been, there's something programmed, built into our spiritual DNA so that every single time we do something wrong, the first thing we do is look around to see who caught us. The second thing we do is we want to pay it back. That's exactly how we live. Some of us are living that way right now. You know, some of us, we're trying to earn blessing. We're trying to earn access. The only way it feels right is if we're paying the price for it. But Scripture says you can't pay the price. There's no way that you can possibly account for all these things by yourself. And so you can imagine that temple, you know, the temple is kind of a representation of what's going on inside. The noise, the distraction, trying to worship, trying to pray, but you can't. Now, some of you are going to say, well, I don't really feel that way. I mean, really? How would you know? Here's how you know. If you pray and your prayers aren't answered and you're bitter, because you've been praying for a long time and God hasn't answered. What you're trying to establish is exactly, you're turning Father's house into a market. What you're saying is you're trying to gain power over God by praying and doing your work. And what you're asking is you're trying to establish a client-vendor relationship with God. You know, who's the boss? I pay my price, you pay your price, we handshake, everybody's happy. And that's why we get frustrated when God doesn't answer. And that's why we get angry when our prayers, our deepest longings aren't heard. Jesus is calling us to a grace-based relationship with him. All of us right now, every one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, we're sitting, and we're sitting in one of two temples in this room. Either you're sitting in a temple that's driven by fear and law, or you're driven by, you're in a temple, you're sitting in a temple that's driven by grace, confidence, courage, intimacy, and love. If you're driven by fear, you're sitting in a temple, then there's no power. There's no miracle. It's obsolete. You're going to feel that. You're going to know that. But if you're in a temple and you're driven by grace, if you're transformed by the grace of God, if you see what Jesus has done on the cross for you, then it's going to change your relationship with God forever because there's going to be warmth in the temple. The fire is in the temple. You're going to experience that. You're going to know that. We call that joy. That's how the chapter, the first part of chapter 2 was about joy. Wine. It merges with this. That's how you know, the fire. When you lay down an animal... You should know what this means, right? If you believe that God is just, you're going to ask yourself, here you are, you're getting ready to lay down this animal for the sacrifice. What are you doing? You're saying, why is this animal dying for me? I'm the one that sinned. I'm the one that's guilty. I'm the one that should be paying the price. But here's this animal, this clean, unblemished animal, taking your place. The sacrifice system was designed so you could experience guilt, but then after the slaughter, as, as the blood is spilling, it's very visible. It's very experiential. You get to walk away and say, now I know from this action, there's certainty that I am forgiven because God has promised it and he does not lie. I can trust that. 
when you look at the cross, the promise is real because the sacrifice has been made once and for all. Every time you look at the cross, every time you feel guilty, you look at the cross, you return to the cross because God looks at you justified. It's a powerful thing. It's an amazing thing. That's power. That's also joyous. It's also humbling. Jesus is concerned by our distraction away from the Father through works, our own trying to be good. It's not good enough. Only he had the perfect record. And he didn't want us to pay the price. He paid the price. Perfect life, perfect death. He got everything we deserved so that we could have everything that he deserved. That's the gospel. And if you're not living out the gospel, then you're living out something else, and it's not going to be good news. Now, the second thing, and this is faster, Jesus becomes your authority. Look at verse 18 to 22. Jesus has cleared out the temple. And what's the first thing that happens? The people come to him and they say, now explain to us. First, they ran. They ran. And then afterwards, they gathered together and they said, now explain this to us. What right, what authority do you have to do these things? It wasn't the whip he was afraid of. He was one man. Imagine going into a mall. Think about the King of Prussia mall. You know, and, uh, you know, you start out at one wing and you run down, you know, the Apple store is on your left. You take a baseball bat and you run through and just smash all the windows. How far do you think you get before somebody will tackle you and stop you? They could have stopped him. But it doesn't say that here. They all ran. They cleared out of the temple. And then later on, they came to Jesus and asked, what authority do you have to do what you did? What about, was it the whip that they they were afraid of? Jesus came with presence. Jesus came with authority. It said that they, it said they asked, what authority are you coming with? In other words, he had authority. They knew it. They wanted to, him to explain it to them. And uh, they felt that authority first. So imagine, you know, imagine that uh, um, if you're present there and you see Jesus and what he's done and his answer and his response, what is he saying? I am the temple. I am the new authority. I have authority. In other words, I am the center What does this mean? If you're a Christian, what it means is Jesus has taken residence into your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. Very simple. Jesus has taken residence. You have become his temple. And what that means is that now you have power. Now you have fiery. The presence of God is now in your life. You have a living relationship with a living Savior. And he's not just a religion anymore. He's not just a figment of our insecurities projecting themselves into this response called religion. That's what Freud says. That's not what it is now. You have this living relationship with the Father through Jesus. And so your only response is, because he's moved into your life, is to submit to him moving in. If you don't submit to Jesus, then you're already submitting to something else. There's another center already in your life. We're built to be worshipers. And, you know, you could sit there and say, well, I don't think I have anything particularly ruling my life. Well, yeah, think about it. Every day you go into work, you're afraid of, dis- of disappointing your boss. You're afraid of losing that promotion. Every day when you walk into work or into school, the things that you have to do to prove yourself, and there's this dying internal need. Even if you didn't have that, you have your friends, you have your parents, you have your siblings. Things that you have to live up to, what's generating that? It's our spiritual DNA. What's generating that? And it renders us powerless because if you do well, you feel good for a moment, but then you look around and you compare yourself with everybody around us. And what do we do? All of a sudden, we lose power. We get depressed. We get insecure. We get jealous. We get covetous. We get envious. We get angry and frustrated. 
It's because something else is residing at our center. Jesus says, when I take residence, I am the authority in your life. Every other center makes you pay for it, makes you work for it. Think about it. Any other center, money, sex, power, any of these things make you give up things for it, makes you work for it. Jesus says, when I become the authority in your life, I've paid the price and I've moved in. I'm not renting you. I'm not putting up a mortgage for you. I paid it once and for all. You're a broken down house. I'm taking it. I've claimed it for myself. I paid it in full. And now I've moved in. And I'm going to clean everything up room by room. I have the authority. Remember Adam and Eve? God tells Adam, you can eat from any tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from any tree, but you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why that tree? Which tree did he pick? We have no idea. But why that tree? Adam doesn't ask why. Because at that moment, he says he has authority. And the serpent comes and asks him, why? Adam disobeys. And he's thrown into a world of corrosion for the rest of his life. Here, same kind of thing. Jesus performs an action. They don't ask. They run. Later on, they ask, what authority? Now they're asking. If you submit to Jesus, aside from the fact that he is the authority any other reason to submit? I mean, a lot of us, you know, uh, say, well, I don't want to obey. I need to understand first. You know, I need to understand what he's saying before I actually listen to him, before I submit. Jesus, God, look, look what's going on here. Jesus says, I'm going to assert myself for who I am, and you're going to follow. You're going to obey. You know, then I'll explain. If you obey God because he gave you good answers, then you're really not obeying him. You're not really submitting to him. You're submitting to your own brain's ability to understand what he's saying. You're submitting to yourself. Some people say, well, you know, I want to become a Christian, but does that mean I have to stop sleeping with my boyfriend? In other words, I can only believe if he fits my needs. But remember this. You're not asking someone into your life that you've created. That kind of God will never be able to challenge you. That kind of God, a God that you create will never be able to disturb you, will never be able to challenge you, will never be able to transform you, will never be able to move you. That kind of God will never be able to give you joy. Jesus says, I am the authority. You can't come to me with conditions. If you come to me with conditions, you don't want the temple. If you come to me with conditions, then you want what's obsolete. You want the institution. You want the building. You want the religion zeal for your life now consumes me. Your life is his house. He is the authority. The second thing, the last thing, is that it transforms our lives with the way we view other people. If you think about what the temple is, the outer court where the money changers were, where the smell, the noise, the distraction, that's a place that was reserved for Gentiles, the non-Jews, people who didn't know God, but you know, if they had some slight desire to kind of understand religion or faith, they were allowed into that outer court, and they were allowed to pray. But the thing is, when they prayed, that's where all the distraction was. That's where the noise was. What's Jesus doing? He runs in. He clears everything out. What he's saying is, you know, this place is a place that, that needs to be cleansed. It, it's a place where the people that you look down on, the people who don't know me, the people who don't know God, these are the Gentiles. That's what they called them back then, the Gentiles. The people who were not born into this, who understood this, these are the people now I'm going to draw. I've made it possible for anybody to come to me. 
I've made it possible for all races, all ethnicities, all cultures, all language groups. The gospel can actually change your view, your relationships with other people. It's no longer, it no longer has to be selfish. Like, a selfish relationship is very manipulative. You know, you befriend them so that you can get something out of them. Here, Jesus t- says, when I become authority into your life, your lives will be so transformed that now you can actually befriend other people genuinely. Not to gain power of them, not to compare yourself to them. Like, you know, I'm a friend with this person, but this person really lives a bad life. It makes you feel better about yourself. You know what? He says, I'm taking that right away from you. You can now embrace all people because the same grace that saves them is the same grace that saved you. You needed it just as much. We can come here humbly. We can worship humbly. We can worship in grace. One of the things that we want to do as we grow into a church is allow the opportunity for people to come to faith. You know, and um, conversion. The gospel doesn't try to subvert you. Jesus doesn't try to subvert you. He wants to convert you. He wants to transform you. We want to give you an opportunity. If you've fallen so far, if you feel like you've fallen so far away from the tree that is the cross, you can come. You can come right now. Where you're sitting, where you are, you can tell your friends. Where you're sitting, where you are, you can come. And he loves you no differently. That's the amazing thing. He loves you no differently than the person who's been here for ages, who's known Jesus. We want to give the opportunity for that. So what we're going to start doing is just give you an opportunity to be able to sit, chat with myself, any, any member of the staff, you know, we'll be hanging around as we connect with you. And if that's in your heart, if, you, if this moves you for the first time, tell us. Let's talk. That's what the church is about. It's a place where the hurting and the broken can come to faith for the first time. Every bit as much as for the people who've been in faith for weeks and weeks, we should, we should be experiencing the same type of renewal every week together. We are the same. That's freeing. It's not a place of judgment. It's a place where we can experience and know and receive the glory of God in Jesus, our center.